So we are in the book of Numbers this summer, or Bamidbar, as they say in Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible. And um, this morning, I'm going to start, I'm going to say something, and my guess is that at least on some level, you're going to want to resist it. But, and, and you know, this is, this is how it's always supposed to go when we gather. You, you know this, right? Like, as your pastor, my job is not to tell you what to think, and your job is not to just, like, uncritically accept everything I say. That's fundamentalism, which I think is a recipe for disaster. We have kind of a different agreement here. My job as your pastor, this is how I see it, is to like crawl on my belly up to the, the edge of like the vast, endless canyon of the divine and to rally my, you know, kind of fragile artist's heart to find the courage to peek over the edge and try to stare into the face of the divine and just drink it in and wrestle with it and then come back and tell you about what I've encountered as creatively and compassionately and hopefully as helpfully as I can. And, and in doing so, to try to really provoke you to ponder God's you know, wisdom for life and the world and what it means to be human. And that's my job. Your job is, in large part, to resist what I say. <laughs> Just to argue with it and internalize and wrestle with whatever I bring to us as a community. And then when that, all that's done, whatever stands, we just call the work of the Holy Spirit in this place. And, and as we talk about that and make meaning of it, then I try, the other part of my job is to capture the language that we use and harvest it and, and hold it and crash it into the scriptures and our tradition and then bring it back again and let it shape us. And um, this is a slow, patient process that we call discipleship or seeking first the kingdom. And that's kind of our deal as congregation and, and pastor. Hopefully you're good with that. Um, so I'm going to say something that I believe to be true, um, but at least part of you will want to resist it. Part of me does, anyway. But another part of you, I think, knows it to be true and, and wants it to be true and knows that if it isn't true, at least on some level, that we're all in big trouble. And, and this is it. This is what I want to say. Faith evolves. And think about that. However you define it, faith evolves over time. It grows, it changes, it unfolds. Faith kind of ravels and unravels. Beliefs and practices come and go and develop and transition from one thing into a very different thing or things. Your faith, my faith, the faith evolves over time. And it has to, it has to. Faith has to change and grow and evolve over time, or it dies. Your faith, my faith, the Christian faith, changes and grows over time, or else it dies from lack of oxygen and motion, lack of circulation and space to expand and grow, lack of relevance to life as we know it, or just from, you know, senility and loss of vitality and purpose. Faith evolves over time or it becomes brittle and fragile, defensive and easily offended. 
condemning heretics, consolidating power, eventually violating even its own deeply held tenets in order to survive and stay the same and stay in power amidst a world that's always changing. Faith evolves over time, or it becomes immobile, stagnant, static, stationary, until it eventually dies the death of rigidification, of calcification, hardening of its own heart. And on one level, I'm sure you've probably experienced this, the the evolution, say, from our childhood faith, which is mostly about identifying with our parents and family, to a more grown-up faith we can call our own, hopefully evolving from just like the keeping of rigid rules and laws to uh, living in active faith that involves, you know, moral discourse and things like forgiveness and reconciliation, always learning, always growing, discerning, trying to follow the will of God. Hopefully we've all experienced this evolution. Um, Israel's faith evolved from Egypt to Sinai, from Sinai, from the wilderness to the promised land, from the splendor of Jerusalem to exile in Babylon, and then back to Jerusalem in the second temple, Judaism, very different than the first time. Then the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the, the um, development of the synagogue system as opposed to the temple system. Um, life in the Jewish diaspora, Judaism was constantly evolving. Christianity evolved from what was first just a Jewish sect. It wasn't supposed to be its own religion, but then it, it evolved and became separate, even in conflict with Judaism. It evolved from then a persecuted minority to the official religion of Rome, and then to the head of the church being crowned the, the um, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. It's quite an evolution. And sometimes there's like a spiritual driver of this. Sometimes it's cultural, things like wars, politics, Science, medicine, technology have all driven faith to evolve. The printing press, it drove the Reformation. Multi-masted sailing vessels evolved Christianity in America. It brought the faith here. And American Christianity is weird. It's peculiar compared to the rest of the world and compared to history. American faith evolved alongside things like manifest destiny, Westward expansion. It evolved to um, first support slavery and then evolved to to, um, oppose it. Revivalism, this was a new thing. Evangelicalism, this was new. It evolved in America where the gospel became primarily about um, accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and getting to heaven when you die, right? Contemporary Judaism evolved in America as well. Um, In response in part to the rise of modernity and and in large part in response to World War II and the Holocaust. So in America, they have like three big clans. There's the Orthodox. They emphasize um, not changing, not evolving. They resist evolution, even though they have clearly evolved in many ways. The Reformed bunch, they are sort of at the other end of the spectrum, and they assert the right to, to evolve and reinterpret anything. And then in the middle is the conservative sect. Um, Rabbi Glickman, my friend, he, he says, we're kind of like Episcopalians. He always has to give us a Christian version of it to understand. 
And they emphasize faithful practice and social justice, but they do things like they keep a a kosher diet and observe the Sabbath. Probably most of us would say our own personal faith has evolved in important ways. Maybe it began in the revivalist tradition, but now has been impacted by things like contemplative Christianity, the gospel of the kingdom of God, Christ's vision of the peaceable kingdom. Often there are cultural drivers that cause rapid evolution of the Christian faith. I mean, it's happening right right now in, in big ways in our culture. The church's role in things like politics, racism, trauma and abuse, the culture wars, views on sexuality, patriarchy, climate change, even particular things like the, the embrace of Trumpism is evolving faith. Responses to the pandemic or Black Lives Matter or Me Too, these cultural things, they're all driving people's faith to evolve right now. And it's evolving, if you talk to them, in order for them to keep the faith, to continue to live faithfully in the face of dramatic change. Faith evolves over time. It has to or it dies. And part of you probably knows this to be true. But if you're like me, you also feel like this, some internal resistance to this idea. Because there's, there's this tension involved, like a danger even, when balancing our um, tradition and the realities of cultural change. And, and a desire to be part of the world and part of our culture in a particular time and place, and yet still hold to the continuity of the past. And so what must remain constant and, and what is negotiable? How far is too far in the evolution of our faith? How can we tell? And who gets to say what ends up being like traditionalism, just like holding tra- tradition for tradition's sake? And, and what, when does faithfulness to our tradition actually require us to evolve? And how can we continue to, to change and learn and grow and adapt? How should our faith evolve over time, without breaking continuity with historic Christianity, without leaving that behind. And for me, I think this is exhilarating. It's, I mean, I love that I get to be alive and part of the church, poised as we are kind of at the end of one era, modernity, and the beginning of this new era that's struggling to be born, and nobody knows where it's going. We don't know where it'll be in 10, 20 years, especially not like 50 years We know things are changing fast, and we know our our faith will need to evolve in order to survive. So to me, it feels like a gift to get to to re-embody the church that is both faithful to Christ and relevant to the world. And if we get it anywhere close to right, we'll be some of the first Christians to embody the good news in a time of massive cultural change which is exciting to me, but it also means the stakes are really high for the kingdom and for our community. What we do as a church will have a big impact on on the world around us. as We try to balance the realities of cultural change and the leadings of the spirit with this continuity of tradition that we hold to, asking what needs to remain constant and what must evolve. 
And today's text, I think, is, is a glimpse into one of the first times this happened for the children of Israel. It's from Numbers chapter 9, starting verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the Israelites keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time according to all its statutes and all its regulations. You shall keep it. And then we're told that they did exactly as they they were told. And then verse 6, but there were persons who were unclean from contact with a human corpse, and they were unable to keep the Passover on that day. They approached Moses and Aaron that day. These persons said to him, although we are unclean from contact with a human corpse, why must we be prohibited from presenting the Lord's offering at its appointed time with the rest of the Israelites? So if you remember um, from Leviticus, keeping the Passover sort of defined them as the people of God. And this is exactly one year after the very first Passover they celebrated um, the night before they, they left Egypt for Sinai. Here it's the second Passover observed the night before they're, they're leaving Sinai for, they think, the promised land. I mean, their, their expectation at this point is not that they'll wander. It's that they will leave here and go straight into the promised land, conquer whoever they need to conquer, and take their place among the nations of the world. Even Moses thought that's where this is going. They're like, a week, 10 days tops. That's what it'll take. By the hand of Yahweh, who led us out of Egypt, right? And by whose command they were to keep the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. And anyone who didn't observe the Passover was to be cut off from the people. But there was this problem, because some people had a loved one who just died, and they were required by law also to give them a burial. And so they had touched a dead body and were ritually unclean during the time of the Passover. So you couldn't, they had to go outside the camp for seven days. So they're they're trying to be faithful, but were disqualified due to kind of a, a reason beyond their control. There was Um, In a sense, there was no law for that. Perfect adherence to the law would kind of say two contradictory things. They had to observe the Passover to be part of the people of God, but they couldn't observe Passover because they were unclean. And so they come to Moses and say, what do we do? And, And the only way to answer this question was to, in a sense, go beyond the letter of the law, to evolve this faith very young faith, here kind of early, early in their life. There's no law that covers that situation. So, verse 8, Moses said to them, Indu, and let me hear what instructions the Lord gives about you. In Hebrew, this word Indu, it's a cognate of um, Ahmad. It means stay put, stand by. Um, just stop and wait until further notice. Interesting word. And so there's this, this difficult question of how to be faithful to the tradition. And, and instead of like Moses just pretending to know the answer right away and flexing his authority or defaulting to like the most conservative response or the most progressive response, Moses says, Indu, stand by, hang on, hang on a minute. Let's consider this carefully. And he even says the goal of Indu here is to wait for guidance from Yahweh. So he's looking for wisdom. 
wisdom from God and how to evolve their faith. And it doesn't take long. He comes back and says, when any of you or your posterity who are defiled by a corpse or, and then he mentions another common problem, or are on a long journey, would offer a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, they shall offer it in the second month on the 14th day. So they just, just have to wait a month and they can all gather and do it, do it together. Observe it normally. Problem solved. So, so why include this little story? What's the point of this exercise? One thing we know for sure is the point of the exercise is not perfect observance of the law. Perfect observance of the law would be just to cut these people off. The other thing we know is they can't alter the law. It says what it says, right? So what does Moses do here? He makes an exception. He evolves their practice of faith. And it evolves it in a particular way that will err on the side of inclusion of those who've been marginalized. Just wait for a month, let those who missed it the first time catch up to the group. And so this, this weird little story gives us, I think, a glimpse into what God was truly after with the institution of Jewish law. And it wasn't strict observance, you know, keeping the law for law's sake. If that's what God is after, they would have cut these people off. But what the rabbis say, the whole point of this story's inclusion is to learn how to indu, to learn to stand by, to just take a beat, consider and ponder what's right. And the goal isn't strict observance. The goal is wisdom for the ordering of their common life. Wisdom from Yahweh for how, to, how their faith must evolve in that particular time and place. The whole point of observing the law wasn't just to observe the law, but rather by observing the law that this would form within the people of God wisdom for how to navigate life's kind of gray areas, unpredictable situations, and character to follow through, right? To practice wisdom, even when, or especially when it's difficult. And these are, in a sense, these are wilderness questions, right? They emerge when our normal routines break down. Faith, in a sense, faith doesn't evolve when everything is working, it's when everything breaks down and there's no clear path forward and, and, and we have to indu, we have to wait, just stand by, do reflection and prayer and study and discernment. Because there is no moral law or religious or political law that can solve every ethical um, conundrum, you know. Sometimes even trying to do what's right gets you into trouble and leaves people out. But the law itself is mostly there to cultivate wisdom in the life of the people of God. And, and it does this through these rhythms and habits and practices. We would call them spiritual disciplines or practices, the rhythms of worship. And, and there, are, there are no shortcuts here. There's no shortcut to wisdom. One of my favorite authors, Barbara Taylor, she says it this way. She says, wisdom is not gained by knowing what is right. That's a profound statement. Wisdom is not gained by knowing what is right. Wisdom is gained by practicing what is right and noticing what happens when that practice succeeds and when it fails. So God asked them to observe Passover, 
14th day of the first month, that's exactly what they did. They practiced what they believed to be right, but the practice failed for some of their people. And they took notice of what happened. Go to Moses. Moses says, Emdu, stand by. Let's consider and ask Yahweh for guidance. He didn't rush to judgment. He didn't hurry the process. He didn't just pivot to certitudes and then use his authority to ram it through. He, he, he waits because in, in pursuit of wisdom, in a sense, there are hardly ever any quick and easy answers. You have to be patient. Wisdom sort of emerges on its own timetable. Life in the wilderness, you know, it's never business as usual. There's always a problem or struggle, always an obstacle or, or barrier. Life in the wilderness requires patience, and the pursuit of wisdom requires patience. It's patient work. You cannot rush it. Sometimes you just have to do, stand by, and wait for wisdom to emerge. And while we wait, we have all these natural human capacities and even like cultural gifts at our disposal that can help lead us while we aim to, like, and lead us toward wisdom. We can engage, first of all, the Spirit of God. I mean, we just went through Leviticus last year. The whole, the whole um, purpose of that law at that time was to draw people out of their tents to meet with God at the center of the camp, right? It, it was the way of teaching them that God's Spirit is is alive within every human being and every human community. And wisdom stems from a life um, led by these consistent encounters with God. Of course, we have to admit that humans have not always fared so well when claiming to have been led by the Spirit of God. Anybody run into that little fun one before? Yeah, it can easily go off the rails. So what keeps it, you know, from being becoming David Koresh or something like that, you know, claiming he claimed to be led by the Spirit. Well, what keeps it is we have other capacities to lean on as we pursue the way of wisdom. We can engage the scriptures, tell the story of God over and over again, and especially reading the Bible, not to just affirm all the decisions we've already made in our life. This is how most people read scriptures to affirm the decisions they've already made, but rather to read the Bible over and against ourselves, to call us into question, to challenge us to evolve. And each time through the story, we learn something new because we are, our lives have become different, because the world is different. And so the scriptures address us in a, in a new way. But that's not even all. We have other stuff. We can engage our tradition, like the the tradition of like habits and rhythms and practices and ideas that have been passed down to us through the centuries. Christian practices that form in us virtues of Christian character that, that kind of transform us into the kind of people who are more likely to hear God rightly and follow through then by usually pouring out our lives for each other. So if the, if the goal of the law is like wisdom and character Character is mostly about habits, training, and virtue, shaping human desires through our rhythms and practices that we get from our tradition so that we can not only know what the right thing is to do, like Barbara Taylor says, it's not just knowing what's 
right. It's practicing what is right. And so this is a lot of why at Redemption Church we've chosen to pay such close attention to the church calendar, why we follow it throughout the year. It makes us go through the whole story of God each year, and it gives us different feasts to celebrate, different times to do kind of more penitential or, or conf confessing type of seasons. It takes us into the wilderness during Lent. It, it kind of guides us in our rhythms. It's why we embrace disciplines like keeping Sabbath and tithing, weekly worship, daily prayer, disciplines of community and solitude, of peacemaking and solidarity with the outcasts. These are all gifts that come to us from our tradition that help us find the way of wisdom. We also have what I feel like is just the, the greatest gift because it mediates all the other ones in some ways, and that's the church, the body of Christ. We're trying to discern the way of wisdom. We talk to each other. That's what we do. And we try to move as one. This is what the Apostle Paul called um, be subject to one another, right? Mutual subjectivity or submission, which usually just means imdu. Usually be subject to one another just means wait. Just slow down and wait until everybody's in the same place and ready to move. No big moves until everyone's on board. That's really how we lead Redemption Church. We go slow. And that's also why I'm suspicious of ambition. Like, God save us from ambitious pastors, right? Ambition almost always chooses expedience, achievement, no matter the cost. The body of Christ is supposed to temper that, temper ambition, and lead us instead toward wisdom. The last one is kind of a catch-all. We can engage the full range of our human capacities, and we have a lot of them. Human reason, the ability to think and ponder and make meaning, human um, compassion, human emotions, are powerful things, our, our ability to relate, human imagination, art, beauty, aesthetics, ethics, philosophy, science, technology, literature, government, um, systems that, that we, we make, all kinds of systems. We can engage all of this, and not as like automatons who just defend the status quo, but we can engage it, letting it challenge us, letting it provoke us, and, and, and call into question our assumptions and our prejudices. I mean, this is a lot of stuff at our disposal as we're chasing wisdom and character. If you kind of step back and look at it, you know, it, if we're thinking about what needs to evolve and what cannot evolve, you know, seeking wisdom for life's difficult questions. How do we do this without breaking continuity with the past? We should engage all of these human capacities. They're divine gifts, really, and cultural gifts. And one of the major themes of the book of Numbers is this idea that most of the time, this process of chasing wisdom most of the time, the path to wisdom will just feel like wandering. It's a lot of into, a lot of waiting, standing by. And this is really the paradigm formed in the people of God in the wilderness. And they held on to it. It was a season of wandering filled with controversies 
and problems, and it would not be the last one that re would require Indu, you know, standing by and waiting, trying to interpret life and culture and their tradition. And, and this is part of what it means for us to be part of a church that is chasing wisdom, trying to embody wisdom in our common life. It just, it mostly feels like we're just wandering around. Like, admit it, you guys sometimes want, wonder if, if I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and all I can say is mostly I feel like I'm wandering around, chasing after wisdom, trying to engage all these faculties. And we will never finish this project. You don't accomplish Christianity. Our faith is not an achievement. It's this open-ended journey, often through the wilderness. And this journey, on this journey, it's kind of like how we get there is where we're going. The rest of chapter 9 makes a big deal of the cloud that comes over the tabernacle, right? It's a cloud by day and at night it lights up and pops and sizzles with the presence of God. And if the cloud lifted from the tent, it says, the Israelites would journey on. If it stayed put, they would stay put as well. And, and they just kept watch over the tabernacle. And if it took off, they would sound the horns and, and get going. And then they would um, trust that God knew what God was doing. That God could lead them. And the cloud moved, they sprang into action, and, and there was um, the order of the camp. Remember we talked about the arrangement of the camp? That was the order in which they would march. And so everyone had their jobs, packing tents, dismantling structures, leading animals, carrying banners. There was a kind of precision to the way they moved um, through the wilderness wanderings. It was very organized, their wandering was. In chapter 10, they even made a pair of silver trumpets to sound commands. There was one call that called everybody just to assemble at the tent. Another call to only call the heads of the families so they could um, talk things through and make decisions together. Another call for war. Another call for just bugging out, right? We're, we're leaving. The camps on the east would pack up first and lead the way, and then they would just sort of unroll the camp like a wheel heading off into the wilderness, the, the trumpets, in a sense, um, taught them how to move together as one, to be subject to one another. And the cloud taught them to be subject to God. And so they began to wander. That's what the Hebrew tradition called it, wandering. But even that tradition had to evolve, right? In fact, this is a huge evolution because they thought they were going straight into the promised land, it turns out they were going to wander for a while. They were not ready to head to the promised land, like not by a long shot, which we'll get to in a few weeks. They had no access to wisdom at this time. Their minds had been shaped by Egypt and by bondage. They didn't know how to keep faith with each other and with God. So they would have to wander and they would have to indu, stand by, slow down, learn to be patient and there's a sense in which, in the story, the cloud was there to slow them down. Isn't that a strange thought? We have to say it was there to lead them, but mostly what the cloud did was slow them down. To give them time 
to develop these new habits, rhythms, and practices so they would shape their character. Time to instill within them a sense of community and oneness and be subject to one another. Time to gain confidence in God and each other. Time to get moving down the path toward wisdom. Cloud was there to slow them down, give them time, because there's no shortcut, right, on the path to wisdom and character. And we're sort of trained to look for shortcuts. Like life hacks, they're a big deal. We're sort of programmed to choose quick and easy and painless. To choose fun, fast and easy. That's what we want, fun, fast and easy. We don't want Indu. We don't want to struggle. We really don't want to fail. The problem is that almost every good thing you want in your life is born of failure. Struggle, failure is the seedbed of wisdom. And there's no quick and easy, painless road to wisdom. There's no fun, fast, an easy way. I mean, fun, fast, and easy is probably a path to something, but it is not the path to wisdom. That road is long and slow and arduous and often painful and paved in struggle and failure. And it mostly just feels like wandering. And like all of us, the children of Israel, man, they would do anything to find a shortcut. And so the cloud was there to slow them down. And so they would wander their way toward wisdom. But as um, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in his famous poem, all that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. And the children of Israel were, were wandering to be sure, but they were not wandering aimlessly. You know what I mean? They were learning that, that all, all that is gold, like all that's valuable in this life, doesn't glitter. It's not fun, fast, and easy. And not everyone who wanders is lost. They might be chasing wisdom. They just look a little lost. It's an Indu thing. And those who endure wilderness patiently and faithfully, they may grow old, but they will not wither because the old that is strong does not wither. We, we see this in those who have grown old and wise in front of us. And they will find themselves grounded in the world by these deep roots that are connected to God and connected to wisdom that nourish the soul and sustain it through hardships. I mean, this, this is, I love this. It's a wilderness poem for wanderers. It's from Lord of the Rings, right? Wandering in search of deep roots that will not be done in by the frost. And so it was that there, there's a sense in which, I mean, I really had to learn this from my contemporary Jewish brothers and sisters, that um, it was the wilderness that would make Israel. And it challenges me. Um, that it's the wilderness that will make us as Christians and as a church. The path to wisdom runs through the wilderness. There is no other way. Every good thing you want is born 
and struggle. And our task is to engage all of our capacities and, and practices that lead to virtue and character and commit ourselves to each other and to the life of the world and the life of the church and trust that God is leading, mostly slowing us down as we try to faith our way forward and not be afraid to evolve. Let God lead us to change and grow, to deepen and to expand. And faith does evolve over time. It has to or it dies. But there's a balance to be found between the, the realities of cultural change and our commitment to a continuity with our tradition. And there are questions, you know, how far is too far? How can we tell and who gets to say? And the answer is, in a sense, Indu. Take your time, stand by, go slow, stay together. This is um, the way Barbara Brown Taylor says it, and I'll leave us with her words today. She says, faith evolves both with the times and with the spirit, or it passes away with those who want to remember it the way it was. The good news is no one has to do it alone. No one has to be exclusively right either. It's enough to be together, talking and listening and talking back while we make the way by walking. This is the kind of church um, we want to be, and I'm grateful to say it's the kind of church it seems as though we are becoming. And I know it feels like wandering. This is not an accident. We're doing it on purpose, right? Because not all who wander are lost. Amen? Yeah, let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for these crazy stories from the Torah and that you included in the stories, not all just these stories of victory and, and success and overcoming, but um, that you led your people to show their work and their failures and how things had to evolve and change over time and that you're a patient God and trying to make us a patient people. I pray that this wandering would seep deep into our souls. Amen. <clears throat> invite you to stand now, and we're going to receive communion. Um, the way we do is the ushers will come and release us row by row. You come forward and be offered um, bread and a cup. You take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond by just saying, I remember, or however you feel comfortable. We do this because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took um, a piece of bread and a cup and had all his people share in it. And he said, this, this bread is like my body. The cup is like my life. Every time you gather, I want you to take, in a sense, my life into your life. Be made of the stuff I'm made out of, and then be my hands and feet in the world. He said, every time you gather, do this. And so this is why we, we receive communion when we gather. And it's also why we um, set no limitations on it. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ can join us at the table. Um, so you are invited. But first, let's, let's pray a blessing on these gifts. Lord, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup.
may it be to us a spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. And as we receive them into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?